This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Before I begin today's episode, I want to talk about a special app, podcast app. As most of you know, there's never been more incredible podcasts to listen to. There are so many great podcasts out there. Some you fall in love with right away, others take more time to warm up to. However, most podcast apps treat all of your shows the same. Clogging your phone with downloads of stuff you're only marginally interested in. But with Castro, you can finally choose which shows you want downloaded and ready to listen at the top of your list, as well as letting you pick and choose from your occasional listens in your podcast inbox. This and many other powerful features let you put your listening on autopilot. The app is free to use. You can download it today on the App Store. And now to our today's episode. Welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. This is a very special episode because what we've tried to do through this episode is to delve into different aspects of immigrant identity other than politics. Obviously, there is no escaping politics, but we wanted to look into other aspects of immigrant narratives and experiences. And we are starting with the myths of American dream and how it impacts not just immigrants, but their kids. We all know of the American dream, right? It's the origin story of many immigrant experiences. Perhaps it's yours. You or your family may have come to this country to chase this idealized version of a dream life. Maybe your life became all that you imagined it would, or it fell short. Today's guest is someone who is all too familiar with this concept. Sabreet Kang Rajiv is the author of the best-selling memoir, Generation Zero, Reclaiming My Parents' American Dream. She is a second-generation Indian-American of Sikh descent. Sabreet is also a full-time social science researcher and is currently completing her doctorate at the University of Baltimore. Sabreet and I talked about a number of things, and I'll be honest, we spoke of things that I wasn't comfortable talking about that are too personal to me and for me, and it was... I feel like it was a journey, the conversation we had, and I'm glad we were able to talk about difficult stuff, stuff like how South Asian community reveres having a boy and why, or stuff like model minority myth and how it impacts working class blue collar immigrants within South Asian community and how it impacts their kids. 
What kind of personal burdens does it bear on second generation? I will be honest, this was such a catharsis, having this conversation with Sabreeth and getting to know her perspective on so many things. I hope, I really truly hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So without further ado, let's get started. So welcome to Immigrantly. I am so excited for this interview, Sabreeth. I'm so excited to be here. And you know, I was listening to your other interviews on different platforms. And what really fascinated me was this idea of second generation versus first generation immigrants and how you use these terms, because I go by Census Bureau's definition of second generation, which is kids of immigrants are not really immigrants themselves. But you use the term first generation for yourself to define who you are. Can you um, talk about why you decided to choose first gen versus second? I love this question because it's like, it's as complex as my identity as like a child of immigrant, I feel like, um, you know, the reason that I use first generation is like, like you mentioned, like the Census Bureau, you're second generation because you're a child of immigrant parents. With first generation, the definition is a little bit different for the Webster's Dictionary. And if you look up different other platforms that provide definitions for your identity, it says that either you can be a first generation if you're the first person in your family to have been born in a new country or relocated. So between the first and second generation conversation, I have always been confused my whole life. I'm like, am I first generation or am I second generation? And I kind of sat with that for quite some time. And I never really felt like I was either generation, to be quite frank. I think with I resonate more with the first generation because I am the first person in my family to be born in a different country, um, having lived those experiences in America. But it kind of ties into, I guess, my book because <laughs> I named it <laughs> Generation Zero because um, I feel like, you know, both me and my parents were both together Generation Zero. Um, mm. The immigrant experience really is wherever you go. It doesn't have to be the United States. But if you go to a different country, if you relocate, you usually bring nothing with you. Mm. <laughs> you don't have a social mm. circle. You maybe might have some money with you, maybe some degrees with you, but you're completely starting over from zero. Yeah. So that definition kind of resonated more with me. But if I could create my own definition, I think I'm generation zero, but I go with first generation because I think that's more in line with my identity and how mm. I understand myself. That's so interesting because as an immigrant, when I look at myself, I consider myself first generation. And the reason why I do that is because I feel like I am the first generation who decided to leave my country of origin and move to a new country and start from nothing. You and I are looking at it from different vantage points, but we are somehow able to relate to the same idea um, from different angles, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Like for me, um, I believe my parents are first generation, but I also believe I'm first generation. You know, I grew up here. I essentially had no guidance on what I should do, where what schools I should go to. We were kind of figuring out as first gens together. But I think that's the beauty of our identities. It's like, you know, you can choose to pick whatever you want to be, whether it's a first, second or a third generation or generation zero. Hey, <laughs> um, I feel like it's just 
it really the bigger point is that however you think about your collective experiences as an immigrant, whatever resonates with you the most and like the struggle that you've gone through, the background, how you've adapted to that country, what you feel like has become your lived experiences, that mm. truly define what generation you think you're in. So let's talk about your parents, especially your father. Um, apparently, he had an interesting backstory when he came to the U.S. Brown Girl magazine compared your dad's story to Jack from Titanic. So could you just break it down, his journey, and in fact, your parents' journey to America for our listeners who haven't read your book yet? So my dad's journey is literally like a Bollywood movie. I just huh. don't understand how he has come over here and then my mother has come over here. I kind of grew up with these stories, um, you know, being recited back like this is how we came and this is how I came. And I never really thought, I, I didn't think it was like abnormal. I just like, oh, that's just normal. Like, I guess everyone comes to America this way. Hmm. It wasn't until I was much later, I realized, wow, this is a really heroic and peculiar story. Mm, mm. <laughs> and not everyone goes through these experiences. So I guess um, to start off with my father, he was studying in university in Punjab, and he dropped out of college to go abroad to provide for um, financial peace of mind to my family in Punjab. Mm. And once he did that, he followed the footsteps of his older brother. They both got on a cargo ship. And essentially in the cargo ship, the way that my dad tells these stories, it's like, I'm always so fascinated. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> they think they go to Delhi and then they get on an airplane back in the day. Like my dad has like um, Indian passport and stuff like that. Huh. They go to a different country, I believe. There's just been so many different countries he's gone to, but I think he went to Dubai or something. And huh. from there, they got on a cargo ship. And they, when they get on the cargo ship, um, they travel to every single part of the world. So. Wow. In that, in that ship, you know, the purpose of your whole purpose in that ship is to work. And uh. it's an understanding that you're going to return back to your home, which is in his case, Punjab, India. And they actually pay their, um, you know, workers at the end of their trip. So hmm. one trip is around maybe 12 or 18 months. They get some money to like, you know, if they stop at a location, if they want to go get some souvenirs, if they want to try some new food, they can go ahead and do that. But they always return back to the ship. Hmm. So I think my dad did that for like two, three years. But the fascinating story about this is that a lot of people that go on the cargo ship and, you know, they're working traditionally manual jobs. They're not, right. um, you know, people with degrees. Hmm. So we have some people that are cooks, um, some people that are taking care of the ship engine room and stuff like that. So <laughs> I know the first trip, my dad always talked to me about it. He was like, there's some really crazy people just getting off the ship at different locations. And I'm like, <laughs> how are you doing this? Like, you know, you're just wasted all of your money. Because if you think about it, you're working hard for that money. And you're making a lot of money back in yeah. that time. And when you choose to jump ship, you leave all your hard-earned money for maybe for the past year behind as well. Hmm. So my dad was just fascinated by people's courage and also like, how stupid they were. Like, why are you leaving a year of your salary behind? But he was also really intrigued. I think like when he describes his experiences as he goes to different countries, he talks about how he's been to, you know, I've been to France. I've been here. I've checked out the nightclubs. I'm like, oh my God, dad, you're really advanced. <laughs> like, you've, <laughs> you've done so many different things. But then it's just like, it really goes back to the one thing. It's like when you leave your home and you're trying to provide mm. financial peace of mind, the dream always starts abroad. The money always starts abroad. And mm. usually 
you always think about American dollars. <laughs> right. So uh, the first time I think he arrived in America, he was kind of curious and he came back. The second time he's like still like really thinking about it, like mm -hmm. looking at the different maps of the world. But the third time he decided like this is the time that he also is going to become super brave and just leave all his money behind and just, you know, jump ship, wow. come to America illegally. But the part yeah. that gets me the most is that he doesn't know how to swim. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why Brown Girl Magazine was like, he's like Jack, because there was a point when he was making that voyage from the ship onto the shore of the United States. He was just telling his like two or three uh, people that he was bringing with him that, hey, we're just going to jump and we're going to get there. And they're like, are you crazy? There's alligators in there. We don't know how to swim. <laughs> like, How is this going to happen? He's like, all right, we'll wait. We'll become closer and then we'll grab onto this rope and we'll go ahead and do it. But it's just like what fascinates me is just like his sheer bravery of like yeah. regardless of not knowing how to swim, who cares if there's some alligators? I'm going to wow. make it to America. <laughs> and <laughs> that's really where my dad's story begins. And when did your mom join? So like my mom's story is like before he even left to, to come to America, when he decided that he was going to jump ship, um, he actually went home and he got engaged to my mom. Mm. And when he got engaged, like one of the things that her parents and his parents discuss is that he is, you know, trying to go to America. So if you know anything about South Asian marriages, especially arranged marriages, it's like, oh, okay, like you guys are engaged. Now you're going to get married in five days. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you have yeah. to get married right away because there's a lot of like uneasiness about having a long engagement. But um, from the get-go, it was understood that they would probably have a long engagement because the, uh, the pursuit of America is in their story. What ends up happening is that my mom waits around almost two, two years, two to three years after she got engaged to actually see my dad and get married to him. Um, yeah. And what he used to do was during his voyage and while he was in America living, you know, illegally trying to get his papers, um, he would send back notes to my mom. So he sent back letters saying what he's doing. Um, sometimes he would call if you had enough money, but it kind of became like a Bollywood affair where my mom was really committed to my dad. You know, <laughs> she's like getting these romantic letters, but also... At the end of the day, they both wanted the same thing. They just eventually want to get married when it's allowed and it's safe. So as soon as my dad got sponsorship, he got his green mm. card. He went back, got married. But that doesn't mean he can bring my mom with him. <laughs> so it's uh, she ended up coming over uh, much later um, into their marriage on like a Vistra visa. Eventually ended up staying because she became pregnant with me. <laughs> This is so fascinating because most of what you're saying, especially about arranged marriages in India, I grew up in Pakistan, so very similar stories there. Um, and, you know, then all these visa processes, um, they are so complicated. But Sabreet, do you think at times this notion of American dream um, is a fallacy? It's a myth um, that people from all over the world are drawn to. How do you view this idea? It is a complete fallacy. It's really interesting to me. I feel like as an American-born citizen, I guess, I can, mm. say, I can say this and I kind of almost disregard how important this might seem to somebody else. Mm. In a different country, like having this golden ticket, this unique citizenship that is seen to be like the best in the world. Mm. I think it's really fascinating. And I think you know, just the initial draw of America, like the American dream, you know, you work hard, you pull yourself up from your bootstraps, you're able to achieve anything you want to achieve. But I think in that whole dream, it completely yeah. ignores um, the concept that 
there's social class, you know, <laughs> the exactly. people are stratified into their societies. That's just because I want to become um, Bill Gates. It doesn't mean I'm going to be Bill Gates tomorrow. It, talk, yeah. it, takes, it takes a lot of time and effort. And sometimes that time and effort also, it really depends on the community that you have and the support system that you have. So I think that whole American dream, the citizenship is definitely a dream, but really more importantly, once you have that citizenship, then you're able to talk about how hard it is. I think there's mm -hmm. a lot of heartache, a lot of uneasiness to talk about the not traditional ways of becoming a citizen. Mm -hmm. And usually people are comfortable talking about it after they have become a citizen. There's so many stories that we know where, you know, they're working probably harder than I am <laughs> yeah. as a United States citizen, trying to become a citizen, and then their voices are silent because of just this documentation that is endless and unfortunately really cumbersome. That is such an important point, and I want to delve into this a little more. Now, a huge part of your experience was that your parents had blue-collar jobs, right? Correct. And I feel like there is this huge disconnect between children of immigrants whose parents work white collar jobs compared to those coming from working class. I feel like this idea of model minority is so propelled by the notion of, you know, professionals coming to the U.S. We hear stories about doctors and engineers coming from South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. But we seldom hear stories of working class immigrants who come here and really work hard. Do you feel like those stories are being erased to uphold the model minority myths in America? 100 <laughs> percent. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, those stories are being erased because of one reason and one reason only. It's very uncomfortable talking about your struggles, very uncomfortable talking about your identity and talking about your working collar, blue collar, or even, um, you know, your professional careers and how mm. you actually came to America. One of the interesting things about writing a memoir about a very untraditional topic <laughs> is mm. that you hear from a lot of different people about their experiences in America and like what that actually means. And while I feel like a lot of the South Asian industry and our community, we uphold the model minority myth in a very mm. unfavorable way and not we're not realistic with it. I've noticed that while the blue collar voice is very silent, if not invisible, if it is talked about, it's talked about in a very comical way. It's very funny yeah. on comedy shows. You know, you used to talk about the taxi driver and, you know, people make that accent um, kind of like erasing mm. their identity and their their equal opportunity of also being American and exactly. not celebrating how they actually talk because there's so much beauty in having a different accent. That is the American experience. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but people view that as, uh, uh, you don't belong here. No, sir, I actually only belong here. Exactly. But, but really, what I found really fascinating is that individuals that are upholding the model minority myth and it's working in their favor, they also, you know, don't feel comfortable sharing about their background and how they came to America. Hmm. I personally know... I don't even want to count the names, but it's like maybe 10 or 15 people that have reached yeah. out to me that do have traditional white collar professions. They're doctors, they're lawyers, or they're engineers. Yeah. And they're like, hey, I actually came over here illegally too. And I cannot believe that it's not just me. So yeah. it's it's like we're living behind the stigma because we're scared because we're already portrayed in a really high light 
but there's great differences. You know what I mean? I was listening to one of your um, interviews and you said something along the lines that you're a very smart person, but sometimes you don't feel as smart. Do you tie it to how your parents came to the U.S.? Because I was struck by that idea um, and I wanted to ask you. The best way I can answer that question is like talking about like my identity and the mm. doors that I feel like I can enter. Mm. And, you know, for me, I consider myself to have a hyphenated identity. I do resonate as an Indian American. Mm. And when I resonate myself and I try to open the door of the Indian door <laughs> mm. and as soon as I open it, I'm like, oh, my God, like I'm a smart Indian, right? Right. And I open it, but then I'm constantly reminded that I'm actually not. So it's kind of like, hey, you're you come from a long line of farmers. Uh, hey, do, do your parents have these high professional degrees? They're like the subtle things that people ask you when you open that door. Like, what does your family do? You know, how do you spend your holidays? Um, you've mm. never gone to Disney World. You only go to India to take care of your parents or your grandparents. So it's been one of those scenarios when I would open the Indian door Hmm. I would consider myself a smart Indian because I'll explain why I consider hmm. myself a smart Indian when I open my American door. But I open the Indian door. I'm like, hey, I'm a smart Indian. Let me enter. Hmm. But those constant questions, just trying to understand who I am, where I come from, kind of weakened me. They hurt me. They, I had, I felt weakness because I felt like I was living a lie. Like I actually hmm. wasn't a smart Indian yet. There's nothing that I've obtained in America hmm. or in general that indicates that I'm actually really intelligent and I fit this model minority myth because I don't have any of those things right now. So I would close that door and I'm like, I'm done with this door. <laughs> <laughs> this is too hard. So then I would open the American door and I resonated with the blue collar, working collar background. Yeah. And, you know, the working collar, blue collar background is so hard. You know, people constantly look down on you thinking that your intelligence is defined by what you do for a living, which I really disagree with. <laughs> And one of my the escapes from my American door was when people made me feel like I wasn't who I could be when they mm. challenged my intelligence. And I'm like, well, I'm Indian, right? So I guess you think I'm smart. So let me close this door and open the other door. And I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God, <laughs> it's just a constant revolving door. I'm like, I don't belong in any of these doors. Where do I go? And that's the challenge that I felt in my life. Sabrit, your book raises a very important point of how this country's industries are dependent on the manual labor of immigrants, right? What were you really trying to say about immigrant labor through your book and to um, not just America as a whole, but subsets of different communities, as you pointed out, Indian community, and I'm sure it's true for Pakistani community and other communities as well, that, that have internalized um, racism and classism and sexism, which unfortunately they brought from wherever they came from, right? So what was your message through your book? So the, I think the biggest message in my book is just understanding that no one is better than anybody else. <laughs> hmm. That, you know, unfortunately in the South Asian community, we come with a lot of, uh, we stratify the heck out of ourselves. <laughs> we have like religious caste, we have social class, we have mm. any kind of caste you can think of. And you can also think about, you know, like the financial aspect of like, if you're a wealthy family or not. Mm. But I find it very fascinating. And I think that, you know, when South Asian individuals leave their original origin of where they came from, when they come to America, they try to ignore their past <laughs> in very subtle <laughs> ways. Like, hey, I don't, I'm not actually bringing all these in my 
personal opinion, backwards ideologies into America, but they actually do. And when they talk about their immigrant experience and things like that, if you are already in the model minority myth and, you know, you are having like a really nice (laughs) stereotype fitting right into your ideologies, then you've already advanced and you're like, this is easy. If I can make it, anybody can make it. And that's actually not correct. That's not true. Exactly. Exactly. So the biggest message that I have is that regardless of how you come to America, regardless of the experiences that you have that make you American and Mm. South Asian, that the one thing that unites us regardless is just how hard we work and Mm. how hard we understand our struggles to provide for our families. And instead of stratifying each other against each other, like I'm not going to talk to that person because they're Gujarati. I'm not going to talk to that person Mm. because they're from Bangladesh. Let's actually unite together and try to help our community to understand really what it means to be an American because we're only able to learn from each other in this country. I would Mm. never talk to other people if I was still, I also talk to Punjabi people if I lived in Punjab. Like, I don't know where I would talk to somebody even like like yourself, you know what I mean? So just having conversations with other people and understanding their experiences and realizing that our experiences are actually the same. Are you ready to co-create the world we want to live in? Then I recommend joining the community listening to Our Body Politic, political podcast that's by and for women of color, much like Immigrantly with everyone welcome to join the feast. The show offers a new view of the news, making politics personal with host Farai Chidea, a veteran black woman journalist who has reported all over the U.S. from Standing Rock to Air Force One and covered every presidential election from 1996. Each week, with her passion and decades of experience, Farai gets real with women you need to hear from. Like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Rashida Tlaib, journalist Amna Nawaz, author N.K. Jemison, and more. So if you want your politics, news to lift you up and be useful in your daily life, then listen to Our Body Politic. You can also help them shape the show and the future by sharing your thoughts with them. You can subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. So talking about traditions and societal norms, there's something else that I wanted to touch on, which again um, struck me. I think this was something that is all too familiar. Um, And this notion of unwantedness of female babies, something that's very common in Pakistan. We are two sisters and a brother. And I, I was too young when my mother had my brother, but I have heard stories of how much pressure there was on my mother to have a boy. And I am a mother of two girls. And I am told on numerous occasions that, you know, I should have a boy. This fascination with boys in India and Pakistan and other parts of the world um, surprises me at times. But I want to understand this concept through your eyes. And I know you've mentioned it in your book. And now that you are expecting a baby boy, congratulations. (laughs) Do you think it played out in your life or it has played out in your life? And how has it impacted you as a person? It's just what you said. It's like, that it's known, you know what I mean? Like having a daughter or having a female, you know, 
first, second, whenever, and not having a son Mm. is a well-known thing in our community, but it's something that we never discuss. And for my own, I can only speak of my own personal experiences. Um, I'm the eldest daughter. I'm the Uh. only daughter. (laughs) And (laughs) my brother was born 14 months after me because I was born a girl. And it's one of those scenarios where I've grown up understanding and realizing that hey, why was my dad so upset that I, I was a girl, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And why was he excited when my brother was born? And yeah. it's understanding the culture implications behind that, like what it means to have a boy, what it means to have a girl in our cultural understanding of how to provide for them. Right. Traditionally, I guess, you know, no one practices it now. Well, at least my family doesn't. Some people probably still do. Like dowries don't exist. Um, but, you know, raising a daughter is more expensive. And a daughter is considered a temporary guest. And that's kind of like one of those jarring things about our communities is that here you have a daughter who mm. I believe, you know, take care of so many things. But um, they're, even if they would want to be considered part of the family unit, even after they're married, mm. they're considered an outsider always as soon as they're born to the minute that they leave. And it's always been striking to me. And I just realized that my whole life was around why am I less? Because I'm a girl. Mm. And it's through my lived experiences, understanding and seeing my parents change their ideologies and thinking around what it means to have a daughter that I'm able to understand like the really deeply rooted issues that are in our culture around mm-hmm. a boy and a girl. And like you mentioned, I am expecting a baby boy. And when I first realized I was having a baby boy, I, I sat with that a little bit. I'm like, you know, if I was having a girl first, I think I would probably be consumed with trying to make sure that her voice is heard, you know, make sure all those things that I thought that, you know, she didn't have to deal with. But I also think it's a great blessing that I have a baby boy first because I actually had the chance to teach a a South Asian boy what he means to treat a woman right. And it's just so complicated, but it's one of those things in our communities that no one talks about openly, even though it's like a known truth, if that makes sense. That makes so much sense. You're absolutely right. When you talk about economic motivation behind wanting to have a boy, I think in Western society, there's too much focus on sexism and patriarchal side of the story. But the reality is that most parents want boys because they are less expensive, as you mentioned. They provide for their parents as their parents get older. And what our society doesn't talk about is the added pressures it puts on boys as well, right? There is so much pressure on boys in terms of meeting that standard or whatever is set by the society. My parents are back home and my brother lives in the US and there's a lot of pressure on him to move back and to take care of our parents. I don't feel that pressure. I am not asked to make those sacrifices. So it goes both ways. And I think there is very little conversation around the fact that it impacts both genders, not just girls or boys. I completely agree with you. And I think that uh, one of the things that I've seen throughout my lived experiences, interacting with my family members and outside of people in my community, is just how much of a toll from a mental health perspective, being a son is like in our community. It's like 
you know, self-love and, you know, loving yourself as an individual is something that our community can do better because <laughs> our, <laughs> our community is obsessed with like collective love, like loving yeah. like, the family unit and stuff like that. But I, I think it's even really more complicated for sons because it's the concept of like your love is defined by the duty you give to your parents. And that can consume your whole life. And I... I feel like it's it's hard to have that conversation because it's, you know, we all obviously know how it impacts females, <laughs> you know, <laughs> daughters and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's like the door of being married. When you get married and you close that door, mm. it's like you're free. Mm. But boys are trapped their whole lives in yeah. this duty. And sometimes they might not even feel comfortable either reaching out to their sisters, to their other siblings, whether it's a brother or whatever, saying that hey i need help understanding my own love because i yeah. don't know where my worth is and that could be even more complicated scenario i'm curious to get your perspective on how things will change or are changing with your generation or new generation especially because the idea of gender and sexuality is becoming more and more fluid we are moving away in a way from heteronormative not really moving away but we are I think being exposed to a different set of ideas, do you think that will play into how different gender roles are defined in our societies? I definitely agree. I think one of the things that when you see a shift happening in society, the first thing mm. you notice is um, the definitions, how people name their children, mm. how they even name themselves. Like I'll give myself for an example. My name is Sabrit Kang Rajiv. I have two last names. My maiden name is Kang, and my married name is Rajiv. So yeah. having two last names, because I choose to have that. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, it's um, talking about how regardless of being married, moving on with a different chapter in my life, that the family that I came from, that I'm still a part of, is still with me today. And the family that I choose to make with my, uh, with my husband is also there as well. You know, this is so important, what you said. And I think... That's where we change the dynamic about what responsibilities do daughters have, even if they are married. Because I think if we change that equation, then we change the, the idea of most revered gender. No, I totally agree. And I think it's like one of those things, like if you think about it, you know, last names and stuff like that. And like, if we don't have the understanding of how that even comes to being and uh. the status quo is like, you're always going to have your, you know, father's last name and your mother's last name is never going to be there, then you accept that as reality. Right. But when your last name is a hyphenation of both of your mother and uh, father's identities and their families, then that becomes your new normal. So you're like, of course, I'm part of my mom and my dad's family. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean that my mom is less than my my father or so forth? So it's kind of like not having those, not starting there, I think, hmm. um, hurts us as a society. And then like continuing that like lived experiences when your children or whoever, they interact with other people like, hey, how come you only have one last name? Why do I have two? <laughs> <laughs> they'll start to learn about the world and um, how different experiences are like. And I think one of the things that I've decided that I would really want to focus on is that regardless of if a daughter is married or even still with their family, their their duty to their family and how to provide and stabilize mm. their family mm. will always be there regardless of if they get married. So mm. it's like my, my parents have two children mm. that will hold them down, not just one. You know what I, I mean? I love it. Yeah. So Sabrit, 
in terms of immigrant experience, and I'm pivoting a little, we talk about so many things, right? We talk about resilience. Uh, we talk about patience, um, commitment, resolve. What we don't talk about is mental health and well-being. I came to the U.S. in early 2000s. The toll that it took on my mental health is something that I've never been able to talk about. I was lonely. I was in depression for at least first year. I didn't know who to talk to. Although I had siblings in the U.S., they had come for college as well. I missed my parents. I missed my culture. I missed familiar voices and familiar sounds. Talking about this is such a taboo. Nobody talks about the fact that anybody who comes to the U.S. as an immigrant faces a lot of alienation, which they tend to internalize in the long run. I think the biggest reason is because of just how tough our family, our communities view people that immigrate over here. Um, mm. The best way I can describe this concept is I use it in my book. It's called like being a hidden hero. So when you come to America, like you came for college and stuff like that, you know, you manifested a dream for your family and you're living that dream for them. It's already becoming very tough, you know, understanding that I'm going to not only figure out a new country while I'm getting educated, while, which is very brave, by the way, mm. very challenging, but also that you're still stabilized in your thinking that no matter what challenges come your way, that you'll experience them, handle them alone because you're their hero, you're your family's hero. And really the spin that I put on it is that you're the hidden hero of your own life, hmm. that you're experiencing great deceivals, you're experiencing so much friction in your own identity, in your own mental health, interacting with a different culture, a different you know school setting, hmm. the, this feeling that you have of homesickness because you come from a different place, that something as small as like the language that you hear all the time <laughs> can be huge. It makes yeah. you feel like I'm in a new country. I had, you know, I, there's just so many different like micro levels of differences that you experience as an immigrant that there is beauty to it, but there's also a lot of heartburn on that. And instead of like reaching out to other people, because like if you think about the immigrant experience, even collectively, it could be considered the same. But there's nuances to them that I feel like it's harder to reach out to other people, to your community members and explain like, hey, I'm just really lonely. I'm really alienated mm. here and I want to know where I can go. You might reach out to, you know, maybe it's a Pakistani student association and realize some of these students have already been living here for mm. <laughs> their whole mm. lives. Mm. Maybe they don't understand me you might start realizing that maybe I'm actually alone. Mm. And the thing that I talk about a lot in my book is that when you realize you're alone and then you realize you're a hidden hero, mm. is that you automatically silence your voice because of who you are and the power that you have and the image of who you are and how people back home are viewing you as a dream. Mm. And you're always courageous that sometimes when you just want to really think about the things that hurt you for a second, you kind of put them to the offside because you have to be this tough person. And that's what unfortunately a lot of people experience and they consider that the necessary assimilation wheels of America. <laughs> exactly. And I think for South Asians specifically, some of them who come to the U.S., they don't have language barrier, right? Because obviously India and Pakistan both were British colony. Um, and because of that, we are exposed to the language and it's not 
difficult for us to assimilate in terms of the language itself. But then I think about so many other immigrants who cannot speak English when they come and how difficult it must be for them to feel anything, let alone feel at home. It's almost impossible to feel that initially. And recently I was watching this film from 2006, The Namesake. And I could relate to it so much in so many ways, although her experiences are different and the way she comes here. But I was just watching that film and I was like, yeah, I mean, you feel like a stranger in a strange land when you come here initially. And I'm sure your parents have those stories, your mom especially, because you're probably your dad was working at the time, your mom was too. But do you have any stories about your mom and how she felt when she came here? I think that's like, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, talking about how important languages to understand your identity. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what my mom was feeling when she came over here. Like my mom, she has a master's in English. So mm. when she was in Punjab, she got her master's in English. And, you know, the way the, the English that she speaks and the English that she's learned is very um, much easy to transferable, mm. but it's also has an she has an accent mm. and you know when she came here she was constantly reminded how her English isn't as good um, how she spoke differently and mm. she felt those challenges where with my father he, he already accepted like you know <laughs> he's not like he had a master's <laughs> in English he's just like I speak differently I speak very Punjabi I don't care people can understand me they don't understand me but the, the bigger thing I think that we should really highlight here is that you know Think about the people that actually come to America and immigrate over here. There's like a, a dominant culture, really. Mm. And I'm talking about the Punjabi culture. But if you take the country of India, um, I've analyzed this a little bit, so I might nerd out. But mm. the, the language of India, I think, is Hindi, right? Right. But if you really look at India, there's so many different states that have different languages. And in those languages, not everyone speaks Hindi, especially not the South. Mm. And they do speak English but they don't speak Hindi. So, you know, when you come to America and it's kind of like a twofold situation. So where you might have problems with um, how you are communicating that actual English language, like learning it and talking about it and actually practicing it in the native country <laughs> where, mm. where people are mostly <laughs> using it can be very challenging. But then if you think about it, this goes back to your earlier question about like, why did you not feel like a smart Indian? When you open that Indian door and you're like, okay, well, I'm having a lot of challenges understanding how to really talk English the proper way, I think, who can ask for help? And then you realize that everyone in that door speaks a different native language if it's not Hindi, and right. now you're stuck. <laughs> From what I'm hearing, Sabreed, most of what you're talking about, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, the kind of biases or discrimination that you think you and your family faced came from Indian community more so than any other community in the U.S. Is that correct? Correct. I can understand the idea because, as I said, Pakistanis are no different. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen all those biases and hierarchies of even, I guess, ethnicity to some extent, where you're coming from, who you are in Pakistan, what's your ethnicity, what schools you went to. People still brag about schools that they went oh to in God. Pakistan. I'm sure that happens in Indian all community as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then let's just throw in colorism. <laughs> yes, yes. 
<laughs> I mean, we could, you and I could have, um, I guess, like five episodes on different isms that exist within the South Asian community. <laughs> 100%. So let's talk a little bit about your book. We have talked about it in uh, different ways. We've we've talked about issues that you've highlighted in your book. But I want to get an idea of why you decided to write a book. What do you expect to achieve through this journey? What have you learned and what are your expectations? So <laughs> writing a memoir in the South Asian community... OMG. Like, <laughs> I just need to take one second to recognize that it took a lot for me to get here to actually tell the truth the fullest way without hiding behind the bed of lies. Mm. Um, but I'm very proud of the way that I've written this book because I have not held anything back. This is the real experiences of what it means for a family to come to America, what it means for an individual that was born here and how they've interacted with the American system and the South Asian influences and who they became. Yeah. But um, the biggest reason I wrote this book is I just wanted to be that representation for people that were looking for it. I grew up, I read all those books, like Born Confused, everything. And I was like, I just want to see if anyone understands me. There was facets of uh, experiences where I felt like I was represented. There was a larger facet where I wasn't. So I didn't really see a lot of things about blue collar backgrounds, coming from a Punjabi family, talking about these things openly. Mm. And I just want to be the representation people needed to be. Mm. Now, if you think about it, I am like a social science researcher. So I, what I do professionally is very different than <laughs> what I, um, you know, have done with my book and written a book and now I'm an author. Mm. But the biggest reason I took on this really big burden to do this is because I want to make sure people understand they're not alone. Mm. When people read books, you know, it's a very private space. You're trying to understand maybe different channels of your identity, your experiences, you know, your family's experiences. Maybe you're just looking for an entertaining read. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's a very private space. You're usually super cozy and you're trying to figure out, well, let me go into a different world to understand what this experience is like. The biggest message that I really have to say is just like, it took me a very long time to understand how to appreciate and mm. authentically mm. be myself. And there's great beauty in being an immigrant, there's right. also great beauty in like having a hyphenated identity of being a, you know, Pakistani American or Indian American or yeah. insert any kind of, you know, ethnicity American in there. But the biggest point that I want to say is like, especially in the South Asian community, uh, we're a community that likes to put up a front, <laughs> live behind our, yeah. you know, only show our good faces. And, you know, by showing the faces that are not really they're kind of challenging and they're kind of scary and yeah. kind of like the facade is open. Like everyone knows how my family came here, the experiences that I've had, being comfortable in my own skin and talking about them and being a voice for those people. I just hope that I can heal the community in whichever way I can with some of the way and the stories that run, just so they understand that you're not alone. Like going back to what you said, like alienation is a real thing. Huh. Like, you're not alone. I see you. I feel your suffering. It's okay. And I just want you to love yourself because I already love you yeah. <laughs> because you're an incredible person. I love it. So, Sabreet, one last question before we wrap up. You've done numerous interviews um, and many of them I listened to and I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed. <laughs> Is there one question you wish somebody had asked you that has not been asked and you want to answer it? I think the one question that I wish somebody would ask, <laughs> <that> was, 
<laughs> I'm asking myself now is <laughs> what is the point? You know what I mean? Like, what's the point of this uh, being this person for the South Asian community and stuff like that? Like, are you scared? <laughs> How does this impact your family? Like, what is happening with all of that? It's just hard. You know what I mean? It's just like we all have those days where you're like the toughest soldier and you're like, I got this. I got you, blue collar workers. <laughs> I, mm. I got these other, you know, Punjabi individuals. I, I'll be that voice for you. Yeah. But I think like I just want to take a moment to just be super vulnerable and just say that it's also really tough. You know, yeah. talking about these experiences, talking about your parents, talking about myself, my brother, my family, who yeah. I love with my whole heart. Sometimes those experiences and being this vulnerable can very much so make you feel like, oh, my God, why did I do this in the first place? Uh. But it's, you know, being on these interviews, you know, talking to all people like yourself and like hearing from like my readers and everybody that I understand, like why this is important. If mm. I can just for one second in your life, make you think a different way, make you understand somebody in a different way, then I've done my job and it was worth it to be this vulnerable with you, you know? I love it. So where can people find this book? So people can find this book on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, you know, wherever um, books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> and we link it up in our show notes as well when we release your episode. Thank you so much, Sabri. This was wonderful. And I'm so glad you wrote this book and that you were so honest about all your experiences. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode and what I loved about it was how I was able to talk about things that I haven't been able to talk about. It's difficult sometimes to recognize the kind of biases that exist within our communities or how they impact us and shape our lives. So I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to check our Patreon and our merch because that's how we grow and how we sustain our podcast until next time take care